from Los Angeles. This is the Echelon Radio Network. Hey everybody, it is Brian Hemsworth. We are here at the Echelon Radio Podcast, and we've got Matt Heller in seeing us today. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for not only coming by, but coming back. Brian, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Matt is the uh, the first one from the Echelon ranks to actually come to our podcast studios a second time. Uh, we think he's a secret agent because somehow his first podcast mysteriously self-destructed after we uh, after we did a recording. So I appreciate you coming back and uh, spending a little more time with us. Yeah, I thought maybe I needed a practice round first. <laughs> you actually did a great job. I, I felt bad that we, that we didn't get it, but we're gonna get we're gonna get some good stuff today. I think um, the one of the things that I, I just love hearing you talk about is sort of how your journey in getting into wealth management. And um, one thing we didn't touch base on last time, I, you you talked about how you um, you were born back east, but you went to college out here. And so we, we kind of missed that middle part of your journey. So once you pick up from college, where'd you go to college and how did you get into financial management in the first place? Well, I uh, grew up in New York, just outside Manhattan, Westchester County, a city called New Rochelle. And uh, I decided at the end of my uh, high school career there was time for a change. I wanted to get out of the Northeast and I visited Southern California a couple of times and I thought, hey, you know what, that's not a bad place to be. So uh, I attended the University of Southern California. I'm a Trojan, fight on. Uh, absolutely loved it, had a tremendous experience there. And uh, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I was in college. I sort of thought I would become a lawyer because my dad thought that was a good idea. And uh, I didn't have a whole lot of better options uh, at the time that I thought would be uh, good career choices. But ultimately, I at the end of my college career, I was already heavily in student debt. I was on financial aid. My parents were not wealthy, despite the uh, reputation of universities, uh, undergraduate students. So I thought, all right, well, I need to get a job. And I uh, started out in uh, sales and marketing and ultimately uh, took a job a couple years out of college with a small financial planning firm in the South Bay. And that was my entrance into the world of financial services. So you were, li- you were living in the South Bay at the time, working for a small firm, but you did make a jump to the, some of the bigger firms. I did, yes. I realized two things very quickly when I first got into the industry. One was I really loved what I was doing. I really liked the idea of working with clients to help them build wealth, to educate their children, to retire, to you know build their dream home. But the second thing was nobody had heard of a little firm that I was working for. So fortunately, uh, USC is very famous for its networking. Um, I ended up getting a position with Wells Fargo Securities through a fraternity brother from USC who was at Wells at the time. And this is back in the early 1990s when commercial banks were getting into the retail investment mm-hmm. arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Wells's case, they were losing about $45 million a week in deposits going out to... Uh, losing $45 million a week. $45 million wow. a week as an institution to mutual funds and to brokerage houses. So like any good business, they said, well, if we can't beat them, let's join them. So they went around hiring... Uh, individual investment advisors like myself. And uh, that was how I transitioned from the small firm to the large firm. So what was the best thing about working for the big firms? 
The best thing is if you work for a large financial institution, and I'm sure this is true of uh, any large company, they have resources. They're able to train you. They're able to spend time mentoring you and giving you an opportunity to really learn and protect, you know, perfect your craft, if you will. Uh, and Wells was at the time very much into training, and they were, you know, very concerned about us having the proper licenses and the proper training to be able to engage with their clients and to be able to effectively work with uh, high net worth individuals to market securities. So let's look at the opposite end of that. What what did you like least about working for the big firms? Well, um, for me at least, I always had the concept in my mind that I was working for my clients that they were really the people who I was there to serve. And it was their goals that became my goals. However, if you're working for a large institution, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, I was reminded more than once uh, during my tenure, not just with Wells, but with other large uh, banks and brokerage firms I worked with previously, that no, 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 you don't work for your clients, you work for them. They're the ones who pay you, they set the agenda, they create the approved selling list of securities. And you had to know, you know, whose side you were on, and it wasn't necessarily the client side. Gotcha. So walk us through briefly how, um, how, how you made the transition away from those firms and started up your own. Well, Brian, it was a process. Um, like any good investment advisor, I would read the Wall Street Journal uh, voraciously. And in the mid-1990s, after I had been in the industry for a couple of years, I was still new and I was still learning. I started reading about the concept of fee-based wealth management. Now, at the time I got into the investment services industry, it was very much a product-driven, commission-based platform. You know, essentially advisors would sell a financial product or service to an end user. They would receive a commission, and that was how you— And the commission was on the transaction itself. Correct. So if, if you didn't transact— no commission. If you didn't sell, you didn't eat. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah. That was abundantly clear from day one. <laughs> and this was how it had been done for generations. You know, I kind of walked into the industry when I did, and that was how uh, compensation was structured. However, uh, I began reading articles in the journal about being fee-based. And essentially what that meant is rather than charging a commission for a product sale, you charged a fee on the whole of the wealth that you managed. So if you had a million dollars, rather than putting that million dollars into a mutual fund and getting a commission, you would charge a fee, perhaps 1% annually, where you would get paid $10,000 a year in recurring revenue on that million dollars. And what I found most intriguing about that concept was financially it put me on the same side of the table as my client. So typically a client sits down with you, they have a million dollars, they want to make two million, they want to make four million, they want to make as much as they can make, they don't want to lose. Well, if you're in a commission-based structure, financially, you don't really care if the client makes money. Now, you might have a moral and ethical obligation that you want to help your client, but financially it doesn't add up. Um, But the fee-based model really does, because if a client starts with a million and then you move them to two million, they're happy you doubled their money. Well, you're happy you just doubled your fee. Conversely, if you start with a million and you lose half of it, client isn't happy. If they lost half a million dollars, you're not happy you lost half of your fee. Mm-hmm. So I started becoming aware of this concept, and that was very forward-thinking at the time. Uh, ultimately, by the time I left the big firms to start my company, 
the large banks and brokerage firms are dipping their toe, as I would say, into mm-hmm. the fee-based concept. But they did it with their own package product, and they did it with high fees, and it wasn't how I envisioned it. So I couldn't do it where I was if I was going to make this jump. I had to become an entrepreneur and do it for myself. We, uh, I had a little direct experience with that after my father passed away. My mother was um, very shortly after was quite ill for about a year or so, and she she ended up recovering and doing well. But I kind of stepped in to help them, and uh, there was a uh, not a mess, but my my father had he had a lot of allegiance to the brokers that he had worked with, so he sort of never got rid of them. He just kind of opened up a new account with somebody else, and then he'd just leave you know a small amount you know with somebody, and uh, he had. Um, a couple of accounts, um, not super sizable, but a couple of accounts with a couple of the big firms. And I went to see them. And um, I think they understood that I wasn't interested in a lot of the transactions that they had done. They they had purchased a lot of, you know, B-class shares of things and a lot of really high fee. And so I sort of hinted that I wasn't real happy with the performance that they had had. And they were very quickly trying to push me towards um, their fee which was, I didn't really know much at the time. It just sounded like a lot. And I was right, because as soon as I started looking elsewhere, and this was about, I don't know, 2004, 2005, I found that, um, uh, well, I basically thought I was getting taken for a ride. So that's exactly what you were seeing on the inside, is that the transactions had been working well, the big wirehouses were, were starting to do their own thing, but you started to do your own thing. You opened up your own shop. I did. And uh, that was right around the time I started my company. Um, my partner, Ken Wilner, and I founded Wilner Heller at the end of 2003. And we really kind of got going in 2004. And, and the concept behind it was because I really couldn't serve my clients the way I wanted to working for a large firm. If, if you're a small cog in a very big wheel, you don't typically have a lot of say in the strategy and the structure of how your organization operates. And I really wanted that freedom. That was important to me. Um, And to be able to have that gave me the opportunity to say, well, you know what? Rather than using proprietary research that's produced by the company that's creating these products and services that they're marketing at a commission or on a fee-only basis, we're going to utilize independent research. Why use independent research? Well, if you're going to buy somebody's independent research, they'd better be right most of the time or you're not going to pay for it. Um, Makes sense. Because, you know, I, I wanted a very agnostic approach to serving my clients and being able to provide the best possible research, the best possible portfolio diversification, and management fees that made sense, made sense for the client, made sense for us. And where it was structured in a way so that, you know, both the client as well as our firm would benefit from a relationship. And fortunately, we've been very successful with that over the years. So, So tell us... Now, uh, fast forwarding 15, 17 years, something like that, um, what, uh, what is it like now? How, how are things different? How's your shop different? What's your philosophy now? Well, I, I think, Brian, any entrepreneur you talk to will talk about their own unique entrepreneurial journey. And when I have the opportunity to speak to young entrepreneurs and people starting out, I always tell them two things. One is it's it's going to take longer than you think it will, and it's going to be a lot harder than it should be. Um, you can't anticipate all the pitfalls and all the things that occur, but where there's uncertainty, there's also opportunity. 
And in my time in business, we've faced a financial crisis, a flash crash, uh, a global pandemic. Um, and those are just to name the big ones. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of little ones in there too. But each time something like that happened, we looked at that as an opportunity to not only educate and work of our clients, to put them in a better position than they were in before the calamity occurred, but also hopefully to educate other people's clients mm-hmm. about what we can do. And we've been able to gather a lot of assets that way. So to fast forward to where we are now, when Ken and I started our company, we didn't have any money to manage. I think my parents were the first account that I opened when they were still alive. And now we manage $125 million, um, which sometimes I have to pinch myself because we've come a long way. And in terms of when we started, what I didn't understand about being an entrepreneur versus being an employee of a large firm is when you work for a big bank or brokerage firm, their name on the wall matters. And people are mainly looking at that. They're happy to work with you, but they're looking at the firm's name. Mm -hmm. When it's your name on the door, not a lot of people really know you and you don't have a track record and you're not on TV and you don't sponsor golf tournaments and you don't have that kind of name recognition, yeah. which I think really helps for large firms gather assets. However, now, uh, about 18 years since we got started, now we do have some name recognition and now it is easier to, to gain new clients and we've got the trust of a lot of advisors in and around Los Angeles whose clients we've helped over the years and it's made it a lot easier to prospect. And, and where's the office? Our office is in Encino. We're in the Wells Fargo building gotcha. uh, near the, where the 101 and the 405 cross. So, so the Echelon Studios are here in Woodland Hills and I've used as a barometer during the pandemic um, traffic and actually the commute to Encino has been my, my best gauge. Um, prior to the pandemic, it, to go that seven miles, would take about 40 minutes so if i if i was going to lunch i'd leave almost an hour in advance just to get to encino and during the pandemic i was able to make that same drive in about 17 minutes i was able to just shoot down even if i had to take surface streets i could do it we're back to about 40 minutes i noticed just a few weeks ago so that's that's how i can tell the uh the pandemic is um easing up a bit is that the uh the freeway noise the freeway traffic is a lot busier than it was. Um, what are you seeing right now as, as we s- sort of thaw and, and come out? Um, market seems to be doing pretty well. Is there a, a, a more positive sentiment you're seeing in, in like clients? Are they kind of feeling good that they, they weathered this last storm? And this was, this was potentially a very scary storm. We didn't, I don't think any of us really knew what we were getting into with the pandemic, but we're now a year or so later. What do you see with your clients? Well, clearly things are a lot better now than they were a year ago. There's there's still a lot of uncertainty, and that's reflected in the media. That's reflected in the economic news. Um, but last year was was quite extraordinary. Um, I remember you know reading and talking to people after the financial crisis in 07, 09, saying, "Wow, that was a once in a lifetime event. We're never going to have to deal with anything like that again. Can't imagine anything that extraordinary occurring in the foreseeable future." And then we had, uh, you know, coronavirus in 2020. Um, That was unusual because nobody alive today has seen a global pandemic before. The last one was in 1918, and that did obviously tremendous damage to the country in terms of deaths and and economically. And when we were facing that at the outset last March, the markets reacted predictably horribly, if Mm -hmm. you will. 
However, fortunately, we had the financial crisis to use as a template where, you know, basically you could buy Bank of America stock at $2, Amazon at 40 Apple at 25 I mean, you know, and it, it didn't take a genius to figure out that, you know what, we're probably going to recover from this. As long as the government can yeah. print money and raise taxes, we're going to be fine. So we loaded up on blue chip stocks and that worked out. So my partner and I sat down at the beginning of March last year and said, all right, well, let's use the financial crisis template and let's start buying. And while that worked out very well last year, coming into this year, even though uh, obviously virus numbers have gotten a lot better, things are reopening, that's all positive. There's a lot of concern in economic circles about inflation Mm -hmm. and how's that going to impact uh, economic growth and aren't stocks really high right now considering where they were previously. And the truth is there's always something. Yeah. And you're always going to contend with, uh, oh, my God, the news is terrible. What are we going to do? Oh, my God, the news is great. What are we going to do? And really, I think the secret to wealth management isn't about taking snippets of time. It's about taking a longer view and deciding how best to allocate your clients' money, uh, which is customized to them and which is going to get them where they want to go. There's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be issues. Um, But you deal with that, and and we can react to those pretty quickly. So you're reading the Wall Street Journal, you're looking at this independent research. I'm sure every day you're looking at the markets opening up, you're watching what's going on, you field some calls from clients, the markets close, you make some decisions going forward. But when you're not doing all that, what does Matt Heller do? <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, I think having a balance in life is very important. Uh, early on, it can be challenging as, as you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to grow a business and my kids were very young when I started my company. My daughter was halfway through kindergarten and, you know, mm. my son was in preschool. You know, now she's a college graduate and she works full time and my son is in college. So uh, I'm not spending as much time uh, parenting as I used to. I'm not spending as much time trying to network and, and get our story out there to people. So it's opened up a lot more time for me to be able to do things that I really enjoy, including reading, traveling, now that... Uh, Places are open again. I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, my wife and I have started traveling. We've got one international trip under our belt so far. We've got a couple more trips planned for later this year. Nice. And uh, as you know, I really love music. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's a big part of my so life. So concerts, are they on the list? Yes. Actually, we, we attended our first invite-only indoor concert about a month ago. Um, it's in a venue that fits about 350 people. They invited about 30. Oh, wow. And it was just great, you know, just to be able to enjoy that again. And we're very fortunate. And I, I try to remind myself of that, that the, the pandemic has had such a devastating effect on so many families. Then, you know, you've got to really keep in mind, okay, well, I miss traveling, I miss going to concerts. Well, there's people who miss loved ones who will never yeah. see them again. Yeah. And that's something I really try to keep in mind. Yeah, we lost, uh, to date, nearly 600,000 in this country alone. That's a, that's a pretty big number. It's more, it's more than we lost in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined, yeah. you know, to put it in a 20th century perspective. So, you know, I, I really do try to appreciate every day and, you know, I do try to think, okay, you know what, I've worked long enough today. I'm going to go take my wife to dinner. I'm going to go meet a friend uh, for a beer. You know, I'm going to spend some time uh, with my son before he leaves for college again. For, and for the sake of full transparency for our Echelon Radio podcast audience, I'm going to let them know that my first business lunch post-pandemic 
in a restaurant was with you just a few weeks ago. That's right. We were both vaccinated. We went and had uh, had lunch, and um, it was a little strange. Everybody sort of walks in the restaurant with their masks, and then they take the mask off. So there's a, a weird little choreography that we go through. But I have to say, it just felt really good, kind of doing something that felt really normal again. Sure. And, you know, when you deal with something, I guess, like this, never having faced a pandemic before, you wonder, will it ever get back to normal? When yeah. will it get back to normal? Yeah. And, you know, when you start getting some sense of normalcy returning, uh, you know, I like to think I appreciate stuff like having lunch with you more than a, I always loved having lunch with you, but now I appreciate it more than ever. Yeah. And, so. and, and we got to do it inside. You know, I'd done, I'd done enough lunches and drinks in outdoor patios and things like that. But uh, yeah, that, was, that to me was kind of a mark of, okay, you know, I think we're moving. Speaking of enjoying things and enjoying days, you mentioned music. So let's, let's, uh, let's see if we can't correlate something here. When did you graduate college? I graduated from college in 1989, oh. so I'm, I'm truly a child of the 80s. I graduated middle school in 82, high school in 85, and college in 89. So I, I often say to my seniors at Pepperdine that um, who you were sort of in your, in your growing up years begins to change somewhere in high school, and it, and it tends to change pretty dramatically in college, and that really formulates who we, who we are, who we become uh, for the rest of our life. And music is part of what forms during that time. It doesn't mean that you don't listen to somebody you listened to before, but we really sort of sculpt our music tastes. And you're not only a product of the 80s, but that's really the, the music era that you like best, correct? That is absolutely true. In fact, I will say for the rest of my days that the 1980s was the most transcendent time for music in the history of our country and the history of music, perhaps. So your favorite band from that time? Without a doubt, Def Leppard. Def Leppard. Favorite concert of that time frame? You know, I saw Def Leppard in 1988 at the Brendan Byrne Arena in uh, New Jersey when I was going into my senior year of college. And it was at the uh, high point of their their popularity. Um and it was incredible because they were writing some of the best music that they had ever composed and performed. And it, it was at the top. And it was, it was tremendous. I've seen them probably maybe six or eight times since, mm. as recently as, a, as two years ago in Las Vegas when they did their residency nice. at Planet Hollywood. Um, and they're still a tremendous live band. But being able to see your favorite band, band that you consider to be the best band, at the height of their popularity was tremendous. So let's play a little game. Okay. We're going we're gonna to test Matt on some 80s music. Sounds great. Let's, uh, I'm going to throw out some song titles and i'd like to see if you can tell me who the artist is okay and i happen to have a list of what somebody compiled as the top 100 songs of the 80s so let's let's see how matt let's see if matt really does have a uh, have a, a good working knowledge from that time or if maybe he was um enjoying college too much to remember some of that let's we'll, see we'll give it a shot let's see don't stop believing Oh, my God, Journey. Uh, I mean, the, the, if you have a signature song from the Escape album, 1981, uh, with the bug on it flying out of a sphere, yeah, uh, Journey is another one of my favorite bands, and that was a tremendous album. Love Shack. You know, at the end of the 80s, UB40 came in with, uh, w- with what was a really transcendent album, and uh, Love Shack um, 
from uh, did I say UB40 and then B52s? There's too many numbers. Uh, and yeah, sometimes they get jumbled. Yeah, the B52s, and by the way, saw them a few years ago perform Love Shack at uh, the Hollywood Bowl. They sound the same. Do they, they really? They wow. sound the same, and Love Shack just brings down the house. I you know, think the B52s are tremendous. So I'm going to throw you a softball on this one. Red, red wine. That was you before. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, that was more more mid eighties, and uh, I, I seem to remember that uh, that was a very popular song among a certain subset of college students who, you know, they weren't going out partying. They were not hard rockers. They, you know, tended to stay a little closer to home and relaxed and chilled and listen to Redwood Wine. How about uh, Summer of '69? You know, Brian Adams' 1985 album Reckless. I think he had four number one hits, including that one. Uh, and Summer 69 was great in part but because of such a tremendous song, but the joke was at the time that he was like four in 1969 or six. Like he didn't, It wasn't really his story. It was the songwriter's story who he collaborated with to, to write it. But, you know, you listen to satellite radio and Brian Adams comes on with Summer 69, you have to turn it up. So I think I'm, I'm losing this battle here. I think you're, you're winning with your knowledge here. So I'll just do one or two more just to, to uh, see if I can't throw you a little bit. Sharp Dress Man. Sharp Dress Man. Um, I would sing it if I could sing. Um, oh, ZZ Top, of there, course. Wow. That, that was also 1985. Wow, you pulled that one out. That was, that's impressive. I had to think about that one. Um, I'll do one more. How about... Um, Jack and Diane. You know, in the early 1980s, before he changed his name to John Mellencamp, John Cougar uh, had a tremendous career, and there's a whole cottage industry surrounding Indies music who said that it was actually changing his name from his stage name, John Cougar, which he hated, to John Mellencamp, which is his real name. Uh, his, the music got worse when he went to his real name. Uh, but Jack and Diane was uh, one of the top hits, I want to say, of 1982 or 1983. And probably next to pink house is one of his biggest hits of all time very good very impressive i'm i'm very impressed by that i have a feeling i could go through a lot more of these and you'd probably nail every one of them yeah well i confused you before you would be 52 so only for a moment wasn't perfect only for a moment you caught yourself on that one i, I did i think that's good <laughs> um let's uh let's uh just rapid fire a couple more quick things that we like to do sometimes at the end of the podcast favorite kind of food to eat you know, I love sushi. Sushi? Yeah, it's not something that we really had growing up in New York, and I came out here to California. I was a student at USC, and one of my fraternity brothers said, I'm going to take you to sushi on Sunset, which was a place in the mid-'80s. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is raw fish. And first I was scared, and then I was in love, and uh, probably still sushi is my favorite. Favorite uh, uh, close-to-L.A. weekend getaway? You know, probably Santa Barbara. Um, I met my wife several years after we had both graduated from college. She went to UCSB. Mm. And uh, when we first started dating, she said, I wanted to take and show you where I went to school. And so we'd spend time up in Santa Barbara, and that's where we got engaged. And uh, that's, that's probably an all-time favorite weekend getaway for me. Favorite superhero? Favorite superhero? Um that's a really good question because I I like the superheroes who tend to be more complex. So mm -hmm. I would say probably Peter Parker, mm -hmm. Spider-Man. Um, and I think characters like that uh, have become 
I think, more complicated and a little deeper and, and richer in recent years. Whereas early comic book characters, there was good, there was evil, and there wasn't a lot in between. And uh, even though I work in a very black and white field, you know, financial services, I'm fascinated by gray areas, and I'm fascinated by people who are the sum of their experiences, and they've been through stuff, and rather than succumb to their circumstances, they've transcended them and succeeded anyway. And Peter Parker, for me, was always the ultimate underdog who was able to, to get it done. Almost like a more modern Clark Kent. Yes, yes. Although I, I think the early Superman, uh, you know, they kind of made him out to be sort of a nerd and he wore yeah. glasses, but, you know, he was always the man of steel. Whereas with Spider-Man, he, he had self-doubt. Yeah. And, and he questioned himself and his morality became an issue. And, you know, when I did read comic books when I was young, that's what appealed to me about him. So final question. What's one bucket list thing you haven't done that you want to do? You know, it's funny. Um, I love cars. Uh, I've, you know, always loved to go fast and, you know, speed responsibly, of course. Uh, a number of years ago, I had the chance to, to test drive some really high-end cars up in Willow Springs, and that was a lot of fun. One thing I would like to do at some point is I'd really like to go next level and drive Indy. I would like to get an opportunity to do open wheel, and preferably in Europe. Um, you know, there's ways you can make this happen, and it's not terribly affordable, but I'd really like to be able to strap on an Indy car because you really don't get into it and drive it. You strap it on and you go. And I'd really like to see how that would be. I've I've gotten to fly airplanes. I've scuba dived. I've done a lot of really uh, amazing extreme things. I got pretty far studying martial arts. Uh, rather than being trained by the local dojo, I was trained by the military. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done some really fun things. Um, but I thought, well, you know what? If I could really put the pedal to the metal in the Formula One car, that would be a good capstone. Nice. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming by. Good to see you again. Brian, thank you. Good to see you. Really appreciate this. Presented by Echelon Business Development. More than just networking. Way more.